0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 242 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we have a special guest. That's Max Stoiber. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. Hey, everybody. Uh, Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Sure.
1: Um, So I'm Max. I am from Austria, which is in Europe. I'm not from Australia, which is halfway around the world. A lot of people, for some reason, confuse that. Um... I'm a open source developer at a company called Thinkmill, which is based in Australia, not but Australia. I'm again not from Australia. Don't so confuse <laughs> that. That's awesome. So yeah, so I work for a company in Australia as an open source developer, which just means that I do tons and tons of open source and maintain a lot of projects. Yeah, that's basically it. Very cool.
0: Let's pause for a moment to talk about our sponsor, Taurus. Taurus is a new tool for managing and securing the secret information that allows your app to run. You know the stuff. Passwords, API keys, database credentials, all the stuff that gives access to the private stuff that you don't want anybody to touch except for your application in specific ways. Taurus provides a convenient way to store all this information in the cloud and they can't access it because it's encrypted with material derived from your password which is never transmitted to their server. So it's secured from them, from everybody else, but accessible to you. This means only the servers, development machines, and applications you've allowed can access the information. So make secrets management headaches a thing of the past and check out Taurus today. You can find them at devchat.tv slash Taurus. That's devchat.tv slash T-O-R-U-S. Well, we brought you on today. There there are a few things that you've kind of put out there in the community that we thought would be fun to talk about. Um, And we'll just kind of start with the React Boilerplate, and we'll see where we end up. Sure. Do you want to give us a rundown on what this is?
1: Okay, so React Boilerplate has a really interesting story. I did an internship about almost two years ago, I think, uh, in London, where I learned front-end development, basically. And I came there with some rudimentary knowledge about HTML, CSS, and CSS. So I built like tiny sites for my mom and myself, basically. Um, And they took me in and sort of gave me some real projects to do and taught me all about HTML and CSS and also JavaScript and jQuery and that that sort of thing. And after like two months of the three-month internship, they were like, well, so we've sort of taught you all the basics. Um, what What do you want to learn? And I was like, well, I have no idea. Everything is really interesting. And they were like, okay, so why don't you try this new thing called React? And I sort of went and tried it. And I had like a really basic knowledge of JavaScript. I programmed a tiny bit, but not really. And really dove into React for a week or two, learned React, and then built a tiny side project with uh, React and Flux, just a tiny little thing. And they were like, "Yeah, so that's cool. So do a little, you know, it, it, it like teach sort of the company how it works, what it does, sort of the basics." And I did that. And then they were like, "Okay, let's build a project with a few of our engineers." And we built a project with a few of our engineers in React and Flux. And I set up. Both projects, and the second time around, I was like, "I'm doing the exact same things as I did last time." I'm literally spending again two days just setting up the folder structure, getting the build process to work, getting everything you know correctly configured and stuff. And I thought that's kind of you know I I shouldn't be doing that twice. Like that's just ridiculous. So I literally copy and pasted that folder that I had done after two days and pushed it up to GitHub, sort of for myself really so I could you know, start my next React project more quickly. And it's it's kind of funny, because the first time I did that, I only had empty folders. And what I didn't realize is that Git doesn't pick up empty folders. So if you commit an empty folder, it doesn't actually add it to the repo. So I pushed up an empty, an empty repo. I was like, what is going on? Why are none of my files here? And then I figured it out and I added like tiny hidden files with no real text in them and push it up. And that's basically the start of what's now React Boilerplate. And um, I continued maintaining it. I continued building React apps, and I continued sort of improving it with all the knowledge that I gained, with all the tools that I started to learn, Um, really only for myself. I didn't think anybody else was using it. But at the end of 2015, it had like 60 stars on GitHub, I think, 50, 60 stars on GitHub. And that was, for me, that was a lot, like 50 stars on GitHub. That was a lot of stars on GitHub. And then last December, on the 20... I think the 27th, three days after Christmas, on the 27th of December, I woke up and I was skiing with my parents. So I was um, sort of in the mountains, getting up in the morning, you know, ready to try, trying to get ready to go out skiing. And I looked at my phone and I noticed there were a lot of issues open at React Boilerplate. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And so I looked at my GitHub notifications and went to the repo and realized that overnight, React Boilerplate went from 50 stars to 500 stars. I was like, holy hell, what, what is going on wow. here? Why, why does it suddenly have 500 stars? And I literally sent out a tweet which just said, does anybody know what the fuck is going on here? Why does my boilerplate suddenly have 500 stars? And it turns out that it was posted on Hacker News overnight and for some reason stayed on the front page for like 16 hours. And by the end of that day, it had like 2,000 stars and continued to gain even more. And yeah, that's basically how React boilerplate became a thing. So and what by is now, I mean, a, a year later, it has almost 11,000 stars, which is incredible.
2: So for people who aren't in uh, React ecosystem as much, what makes that that boilerplate specifically better than, I'm assuming, there's multiples out there?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, so the first version that got popular last December wasn't really anything special. I still don't know why Hacker News loved it as much as they did. Um... It was, I think, the only boilerplate that had service workers set up with app cache fullback, so it was completely offline compatible. So if you had a single-page React application, um, you didn't even need to do anything. You just wrote the application, and when the user was offline, it just worked offline. Everything was cached. And I advertised that a bit in the readme, and I think that's what sort of got it the initial traction. But since then, we, and I say we because it's now a big team of maintainers, we've um, really focused on making it the boilerplate that's ready for production so we have it's downloaded about now it's downloaded about uh, like 2000 times a week i think and if you think about maybe 1% of those people who actually download it then use it for serious projects that's a lot of serious projects built with it and so that's what we focus on we really try to make the best production ready setup so that you can just go in and build your next product with it and that's really what it sets it apart now because everybody else is still... No, not not so much anymore, but back when we released the next version of it, which was in May or June, I think, um, everybody was still sort of experimenting and we really focused on getting it, you know, the most solid working setup where you didn't have to mess around with any webpack configuration or bubble or anything. You just used it and it was quick and it worked and that's it.
2: So besides that, because um, so I feel like there are just like so many different flavors of everything you can choose. What other technologies are included in that? Like, what do you use for testing? And then maybe we'll get into styling, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. So we actually just switched to Jest for, ch- for testing. We used to have a Karma setup where we used Karma um, to run our tests in the browser, but it was really finicky. That was probably the most finicky part of the whole boilerplate. And we sort of got it set up so it worked, but it was still way too finicky for my taste, and I really didn't enjoy enjoy it. So just like the next version, version 3.4, will actually switch to jest. That's the major change that we've done this time around. Um just because jest has been improving so much recently and it's really quick and everything just works, and it's like it's this it's really well done. I was very impressed when I tried it. And yeah. So now we just switch to that. So- um we ship Redux, and we were one of the first, probably the first people who introduced Redux Saga to the masses, which was a really controversial decision. Um, Redux Saga, for those of you who listen and are not really in the React ecosystem, is a way of handling um, asynchronousity and long running transactions in your React apps. And it's really complex. It uses the ES6 generator syntax, which already a lot of people don't, don't know, to make your asynchronous code look very synchronous and feel very synchronous and be really easy to test. And it's, it's really well made. I don't mean to like, hate on sagas at all. I love them. But it's, very, it's, a, it's a huge learning curve. And we tried it for a while, and we loved it. The whole mental model of working with, with sagas is amazing. And so we added it to the boilerplate and got um, quite a bit of backlash for that. But by now, Redux Saga is so well known that, it's sort of a standard, and I think we heavily contributed to that. Um, That's probably the most controversial decision we've ever done, which thankfully has worked out in our favor. (laughs) Um,
0: So one thing that I'm wondering about, because I mean, I've seen boilerplates for all kinds of stuff, and um, the, the different projects they tend to take on different levels of making decisions for me. So sometimes it's just hey, here's a folder structure and here's where you put everything. And then other boilerplates, it's like, hey, you know, you're going to run this setup and it's going to actually install these different packages and it's going to do all this other work for you and you're not going to have to think about this kind of thing. And it sounds like you've made a lot of these decisions. You you mentioned that you pull in Redux and Redux Sagas, you pull in uh, Jest. Um, you know, so... To what level? Because I don't really think of React as a framework as much as I think of it as, as a way to manage the views, and then you know you bolt Redux on, but that really doesn't make it a framework either. It's just a convenient way to manage the state. <laughs> so, I mean, how close are we getting to an actual framework that has opinions and makes decisions for you with this?
1: That's an interesting question. React React Boilerplate is certainly really, really opinionated. Um, it's that's a totally different topic, but um, uh, React Boilerplate has a, a team of, I think, a dozen constant contributors of maintainers that build stuff and make it better. And I've considered moving it out to an organization on GitHub, and the sole reason I haven't done it is because the boilerplate. And if a boilerplate isn't opinionated, it isn't really anything, because what is an unopinionated boilerplate? It's just React. <laughs> so there needs to be a benevolent dictator for life, which is right now me. And that's why it's still <laughs> under my personal personal handle, because that sort of sets the tone. Um, which is not to discredit the other contributors, of course. That's not sort of... They're, like, I'm not, they're doing most of the work, in fact. I'm not doing many, much of the, the actual maintaining at the moment, because I'm really busy with other stuff. But you need, I think, for a boilerplate to be a thing that's useful, it needs to be very opinionated to a certain use case. And... For it to be very opinionated about a certain use case, it needs to have a person who has that use case, which is me, doing the really critical decisions of where everybody splits. Where it's like half of the people say no, that's the worst decision we've ever made, and half of the people say yeah, that's awesome. And then I, there, there needs to be like that one person saying, okay, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it this way, and that's gonna be set in stone, and that is me basically. Um, so yeah, Puppet is really really opinionated, not so much about. The sort of runtime side of things. We're certainly more opinionated than, for example, Create React App because we have Redux and with Redux Saga and we use Immutable.js. But the thing is, what we realized is that nobody's going to use the runtime setup as it is, right? Nobody's going to use exactly our runtime setup. That's ridiculous, right? App, everybody has different requirements for the applications and they're going to change things and they're, they're going to maybe add tools or remove tools in the, in the runtime, right? They're going to not use immutable JS or Redux Saga. And they're going to maybe even remove Redux and use MobX, that, that sort of thing. So we've added guides for removing runtime dependencies, right? We have guides how to remove um, immutable JS. We have guides how to remove Redux Saga, so people who don't need them can get rid of them really, really easily. The thing we're really opinionated about is our um, configuration, uh, the, the tooling behind the whole setup. So we have Webpack set up in a way that it's really, really fast. And it's a really complicated configuration, and we don't actually support... Well, I mean, people can go in into the folder and change the configuration, but we really don't recommend it because it's really finicky and really hard to work around if you don't really know Webpack. But because we've played around with it so much, because we've worked with it for one and a half years now, and have sort of tried all the things, we've got the configuration, all the tooling behind the scenes, up to a point where it's really fast, no matter how, how big your application is, nothing breaks, everything just works out of the box and that sort of thing, right? So I would say we're really opinionated about the tooling behind React Polyplate, but not so much about the runtime side of things. Gotcha. So uh,
0: I, I kind of see two scenarios here with this. Um, one is for the seasoned React person. You know, they, they get in, they've been doing React for a while, they look at this and they say, yeah, that looks a lot like what I use, and so they just pull this in. Um, how does this, how much, how much time and effort is this going to save them on a regular basis?
1: A lot. The amount of time I've spent trialing different tools, trying out different things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't is immense, probably in the thousands of hours by now. And then I take the best of those and put them into React boilerplate. So if you take that sort of thing into consideration, React boilerplate saves you a lot of time just thinking about what do you actually need and want, right? Right. Um, in terms of how how long it'll take you to set it up, once you know what you need, we probably save you a good few days, I reckon, with everything we do.
0: So the other question I have with this, because I see these boilerplates, and sometimes they're geared toward uh, the veteran that knows the ecosystem, and sometimes they're set up so that somebody who's new to the ecosystem, so for example, uh, somebody coming over from Angular or somebody who is, you know... Um, their boss finally said, yeah, go ahead and try one of those frameworks because, uh, you know, it's maintaining jQuery spaghetti is no fun. Um, <laughs> so as people are coming over to this and they don't really understand React, is this something that they can pick up and will actually shorten their learning curve? Or should they come at this with a more uh, seasoned approach and say, okay, I know what all these tools mean, and so um, I'm just going to use this to set things up and save myself some effort?
1: Definitely the second one. We actually had to add a mention in the readme saying, if you're a beginner, don't use this. Or no, we, we didn't have to, but we added a mention in a, a, a huge popular like, mention, a sentence high up in the readme saying, if you're a beginner, this isn't for you. There's so much stuff in there that you need to be aware of. All the, Especially, like, in terms of runtime tools, like, you need to understand how React works, you need to understand why we split containers and components, you need to be aware of why we use Redux and why you might not want to use it, you need to be aware of, how we do code splitting with React Router, you need to be aware of all these things to sort of, uh, use it, which beginners really aren't. And it's really overwhelming. And we got a lot of questions from beginners saying, Hey, I'm new to react. I want to try this boilerplate, but I have no idea what Redux does. And we're like, then you shouldn't be using the boilerplate. And now I create react app is a thing we can, we just redirect them to that because it's definitely a much better way to get started with react.
0: Yeah. I ran into something similar in uh, react native. I picked up a framework, um, I think it was called Ignite. Anyway, um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, it it pulls in a lot of these tools and, you know, I didn't have a deep understanding of React and I ran into the same issue, right? Where it's, okay, I need to be able to make a network call or um, manage (laughs) state and they have Redux in there and I get how it works but I don't actually know how to use it yet and so I, I got hung up on that and you know, then it was oh okay, um, I I need to understand what's going on in this world first, and then I can come in here and see oh so they set all this up so that I don't have to worry about it. I can just come in and change my components so that they look the way I want them to. Exactly,
1: and uh, one of the things we do that not many other or I don't, I don't actually know of another boilerplate that does is what we do is we add a lot of doc- documentation generally about the tools that we use. So almost all the runtime dependencies, including just including um, styling, including Redux, are sort of documented in how they work and why we include it in the way we did. But it's still, we did that first, and we, we realized that it's still like, nobody reads all of that stuff at once. Nobody goes in, downloads a boilerplate, and reads the documentation before building anything. And most people just jump in and try to build something with it and then fail, and then they submit issues, which is really overwhelming for the maintainers. So instead, we just said, hey, if you're a beginner, um, try create React app. And then when you're familiar with some of the tooling, um, try React Butterblade, when you then get stuck, we have documentation to pick you up from where you're at. But we no longer support full beginners.
2: I feel like that makes sense. I mean, I always had, when I was learning React, I felt like their actual documentation was really, really good. So
1: Yeah, like, totally. people
2: get People get so overwhelmed trying to do everything, and you have to just start small and build from there.
1: Definitely. And they actually rewrote the docs. month ago i think and now they're even better okay which is is amazing
0: well and there's nothing wrong with coming at it and saying hey look um we we made this tool to save people time and yeah we, we don't want you to get lost we want you to join the community and and be a part of it and understand what we're all doing here yeah one one other question i have is um Do you worry? Because it sounds like you find new tools and you add them in. Do you worry that this is ever going to grow large enough to where you're going to be going? Okay, well, um, we're going to have React boilerplate, and then we're going to have like React boilerplate, Twitter Bootstrap, or React boilerplate, Zurb (coughs) Foundation, or React boilerplate. You know, some other you know decision that we don't want to include in here. Or are you worried that it's going to just grow into this big, huge thing that makes? A lot of decisions for you, and has a lot going on in it.
1: That's a very hard, a very hard a balance to take. Um, I've actually been trying to remove more stuff than add more stuff because we are quite big, and it's quite overwhelming, even when you know what you're doing in the React ecosystem, I think, um to a certain extent. So I've been trying to get rid of a few of a bit of stuff, make it easier to understand, easier to digest. And at the same time, people who want to use things like up Foundation, or you want to use their own tools, we don't enforce anything, right? We just, right. we just give you like a basic starting point and tell you, hey, we set up some things. If you don't like them, get rid of them. Build your own thing with it.
0: I guess the other question I have then is, how do you decide what to keep in and what to take out?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I wish I had a good answer to that. <laughs> it's, it's that's probably the hardest part of maintaining React Bulletproof is deciding because especially with the popularity it has, we get a lot of requests saying, hey, I've used this thing that's totally new and completely untested in a tiny project, and it worked really well. Uh, Don't you want to sort of add this? And we, we can't... There's so many new ideas and so many new libraries coming out every single day that it's become really hard to keep up. And I'm really grateful for all the people that helped me make React Polite possible because on my own, I definitely could not be doing this anymore.
2: How do you vet the new things that you add? Because I'm assuming you continue to evaluate things here and there. Is it just based on what you're using at work? Since you said like initially you built this out of a need for yourself.
1: Yeah, um, it's mostly just tools. So I do actually, most of, most of the tooling nowadays is people coming to me and showing me something new that looks cool. And then, but before I even think about including it, I'll try it on a real project first and see what it feels like. And then I might make a branch with it and say, hey, here, I've tried introducing this. Um, And then everybody of the contributors sort of goes and tries that branch and sees how it works for them. And then we sort of try to decide and does it make sense to be included by default. And we've we've, uh, sort of gone, recently gone the route of not including things more than including things because there's already so many things in there that, The cost of including things is much bigger than the cost of not including things, because people can always figure out how to add things themselves, but removing things is most of the time harder if we don't document it, which is, again, more work for us.
0: Yeah, removing things, people come to rely on it and then they complain because it's not there anymore. Yeah, exactly. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary and time consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right, they pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right, you get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber.
1: One of the decisions we recently took to sort of bridge over to the other topic that I wanted to talk about is that we switched from CSS modules to a new library called Styled Components, which I wrote. So that sort of explains why we added it, because I think it's great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely interested in this. This is something like I've been kind of digging into a little bit in my free time. So not necessarily in React,
0: but just can styling I, and... Can I ask one more question about React boilerplate before we move oh, on? Oh yeah,
1: sorry. Um, sure, sorry. Mainly it's just
0: how do people use it? How, like how do people get started? Do you just npm install it and then run some kind of
1: no. setup script? No, so what? Well, there's three steps to our setup process, which is git clone, cd into the repo and run npm run okay. setup. Okay. Um, uh making it NPM installable was a huge discussion a while ago, but it just doesn't make sense. It's a folder structure. So Git is much more, well, like it's made for the purpose of sharing folder structures, whereas NPM is made for the purpose of sharing code. So we went with the, we we're still going with the Git route, which is a bit annoying because I don't know how many people actually download it. Like I sort of see on GitHub the clone count, but having NPM installs is, would be an even closer measure, but yeah, okay. that's the way it is.
0: All right. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, Amy.
2: Oh, no worries. I think, Max, you can kind of introduce it if you want.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am, apart from other projects, also a maintainer of a thing called Elemental UI, which is a React component library that gives you sort of some components that you can use, like buttons and models and spinners and forms. And as I've built my own applications, and that as, as I've maintained Elemental UI, which we built for the Keystone admin interface, I... Um, I've always struggled with this whole styling thing. Styling React applications is really not an easy task because for the reason that React encourages this encapsulated component model, this model where you have small reusable pieces that you of use interfaces that you just reuse everywhere in your entire application. And the issue is that CSS fundamentally is made for component encapsulation. It's not a thing that CSS is very good at. And as the whole world, not just in React, but the whole front-end ecosystem has sort of moved towards this encapsulation thing with um, style guides being, you know, style guides are now a thing that people do and it's considered the best practice, which is just a collection of encapsulated components. You have things like Angular 2 moving to components, you have web components being becoming a thing. You have people inventing things like BEM and object-oriented CSS. You have all of these
2: no I was gonna say like even like angular one X like they're you know yeah. they, they have kind of tried to encourage you to go into doing components like with angular 1.5 or
1: 1.6. yeah and so everybody's been moving in that direction because fundamentally it's a it's a lovely model for working on user interfaces, right it it makes so much sense when you actually use it, you're like, oh, this is kind of you know this makes sense. a button is a button. like no matter where you use it, it's a button right everything is sort of encapsulated. They just reuse that button. The thing is that CSS is inherently very bad at this encapsulation thing, and so we started to try to work around it, right, with things like BEM, for example, where you start to try to avoid naming clashes by uh, giving unique names composed out of a specific naming scheme. But the issue is that humans just make mistakes. It's a thing, and...
2: Can I back you up a little bit? Actually, really quick, do you mind giving like a really quick less than 60 second for people who maybe aren't familiar with BEM, especially since we're on JavaScript podcast?
1: Oh yeah, sure, sorry. So BEM is a naming convention for CSS class names. So instead of just giving any class name to any CSS uh, styling fragment, you have this convention of block element modifier, which is the first part is a block, which might be something like a profile. Um, And then you have parts inside that block which are your elements so you have for example a profile picture you have a profile name you have a profile biography you have a profile homepage link or something and those are um, uh, written by saying block underscore underscore element so you always write profile underscore underscore image for example and then you have modifiers because sometimes you have for example a button and you have a button block and you need to have a primary button which is bigger and a secondary button which is not as big so you have a button that is modified with a primary class, and you do that by separating it with two dashes. So you say button dash dash primary and button dash dash secondary, which changes some of the styling of the base button class. That's the bin notation. Did I explain that well? Did that make sense at all?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, I always it's 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 just like you say, like a way of naming your CSS. It's not anything more than
1: that. Exactly, and so that. It works, right? It's a way of avoiding naming clashes with the, all the global name uh, namespace in CSS, but um, it to again, me it gets, it gets messy. <laughs> exactly, it gets no. really messy because there's edge cases where you're like, "Hey, there's an element inside an element. So do I now make this a block or an element? Like, what? How do I? Where? How is it semantically and that sort of thing?" And it's it's a it's just a convention. So you need to enforce it with really strict code reviews. You can have you kind of can lint it, but not really. So there's no automated way of verifying that a block makes sense because it's a name. So you can't very like you can't lint for a good name that, that just doesn't exist yet. That would be a cool thing, though. Imagine having a linter that told you when you <laughs> name things badly. That that's such a cool idea. I hope somebody builds that one day. Um, so yeah, the the issue is just that humans are. Are make mistakes and conventions are great and all but they don't really solve the underlying issue which is that css just isn't made for component systems and so in the react world especially people have been starting to try to do a new thing which is putting your styles n- nearer to your components um, which basically just means most of the time putting your styles into the actual javascript writing the styling as for example an object we say in JavaScript const styles equals an object of styles, which you know, background red. Then you'd write an object notation, and then whatever library you chose would sort of take that styling, put it into the DOM, in, inject it into the DOM at runtime, and generate a unique class name. So you avoid any sort of naming clash in your whole application because every single class name is completely unique. Like there's no way for two class names to be the same thing. Another thing that I should have mentioned probably is that in, in a component-based system, it makes sense for every class name to only be used once. For example, when you have a button and you have a button class name, you shouldn't use that button class name more than once. Because as soon as you use it more than once, and you like imagine changing the background color of your button, and suddenly the whole layout of the header and the footer is completely different, right? It doesn't make any sense. The styles for a component should be defined as the styles of a component. So you only ever use every class name once. Um, which is sort of a thing that people have started doing with component-based systems. And this is a very long lead-up to the fact that we built a new library to do this even better, which is called Styled Components. And the general idea of Styled Components is to remove the mapping between your styles and your components, which is a bunch of fancy words to say that there's no class names anymore. So you, as a developer, say, hey, create a div that has these and these styles. But there is no, the mapping between the style fragment and the div is completely removed. There is no class name that you pass around. You cannot reuse a class name because there is none, right? Um, your styles are your components. And what that does is it really enforces some good practices in your component-based system because what you start doing when you do that is you build tiny pieces of components, right? The smallest component possible, like a wrapper or like a just a button or like those sort of things. And then you compose these tiny style components together to bigger components that have some sort of logic or maybe fetch some data, right? And that way, your whole system, your whole component-based system, your whole architecture becomes really easy to think about because if you, if you look at the page and you're, the list you're rendering doesn't have some items, you know where to look. It's somewhere in the logic. If the layout is messed up, you know where to look. It's somewhere in your style components. So everything, every bug you see, everything you build is very clear where to go and what to put where. And something we also do, which is unusual, especially compared to other styling libraries that have sort of popped up in the React ecosystem is that we allow you to write actual CSS. So there have been libraries that put your styles into the JavaScript, that put your styles right next to your components, Um, but they've all sort of made users write the styles as objects as JavaScript objects, which works for simple cases. So for example, if you say background red, it doesn't really matter if you write it in CSS notation or in JavaScript notation, because it basically looks the same, except for two quotes. But when you get to things like media queries, you cannot just write at media into JavaScript, right? You have to put it into a string. And because you put it into a string, you suddenly use all the syntax highlighting, right? So it's just a massive string. And then you have objects inside of objects, and you need to, like, there's all of these things to think about. And no, no person that knows CSS, um, for example, designers, can't just edit the styles of your site because suddenly they're in JavaScript, so they have to know how objects work. And that's a huge barrier of entry. And so what Style Components does is it lets you write actual CSS in JavaScript, which is the second weird idea. Um, so the first weird idea that, that we had is we removed the mapping between styles and components. And the second weird idea we had is that we let you write actual CSS. So no matter where you come from, you don't have to know JavaScript. You can just write CSS like you always would. And then the third idea that we had is that styled components has theming built-in. Because oh, there's libraries that make styling components much easier, right? These libraries already already exist. And they let you write, well, most of them, or well, all of them, have you write styles as objects, which is fine, right? We could, we could totally be fine with that and wouldn't really care. But the issue is that when you build distributable components, when you build components that other people are meant to use, how do you let them style them? How do you, CSS doesn't work with theming. Now, the one thing that's very nice that could work in the future is custom properties, variables in CSS. So those could totally change the game in terms of theming. But that's a long way off, right? They're barely even implemented in the most major evergreen browsers. Not to talk about backwards compatibility. It'll be another two, maybe even five years until we can actually use them without doing some sort of transpiling magic. Um, And we've built Elemental UI and we tried a bajillion different libraries for styling React components, right? We tried everything we could find and could get our hands on, but none of it worked, right? Everything encapsulated the styling but then how do you change that encapsulated styling? How do you, when you work with encapsulated components, how do you let people say, hey, I'm using this button from Elemental UI, but I want to make it red instead of green, right? And not only that, but how can you, how can you let them say, hey, instead of it being to the size of the text, I want to have it be full width to the size of the container, or I want to have it have different padding, or I want it to be much bigger when uh, the screen is over 758 pixels or something, right? So there's these, these customizations that people want to do and need to do for third party components to make any sense for them right a third party component library is nice but if you can't change the way those components look like to fit your app it's completely useless because then it just looks like elemental ui or you know all of those bootstrap sites not to hate on bootstrap but there's tons of sites that just look like bootstrap sites and that's a problem right that should not be happening and so what Style Components does is it has theming support built in. It has dynamic theming support, meaning you can even at runtime while the app is open, you can let the user specify a custom theme, and they'll update without a reload or anything, right? Um, and we have all of these ideas about how theming should work and that everything should be you know, adaptable by users and that they can just input a component and say, hey, this should have a different background color without having to worry about passing in a fully custom theme from somewhere or anything, like right? they, they, they should just be able to import the button and say, notice button, that one button on this one page, I want to have a background color of blue. But generally, all my other buttons should have a background color of red. And so these two things, no other library has really solved that issue yet, and we've really tried hard to make it work in a way that made sense for uh, third-party components. So what about the case,
2: though, because I think you mentioned this a little bit in your topic, when you do want global styles.
1: Yes. So another thing that style components does is we realize that style components is um, very strict in a way, right? It enforces that you cannot have, that the styles you you create with style components, they cannot have uh, class names. Like you You cannot say this style fragment is associated with this class name. You can only say this style fragment is associated with this HTML tag, with this component. Um, and so what we do is because we realize how strict that is and because we need to be strict to make sure it's useful what we do is we provide all of these escape hatches to make it useful even when you need to work around it for example there just are certain properties in css that need to be global if think of like font face font face is probably the best example font faces cannot be scoped to a component they can't font faces are global whatever you do they're global and so we provide an escape patch to inject global CSS into the DOM, or you just use a style sheet still, right? Like you can still use style sheets. We don't say anything about that, right? But we also provide an escape patch so you can inject style sheets from your your JavaScript and that sort of thing. So we really try to make a library that's so opinionated that it's useful and makes you build good components, but at the same time, provide escape patches to people who really need to do certain things that just they need to do, they can still do without having to completely break out of the style components model.
2: Awesome, that answers my question.
1: Awesome. So that was just a very long rant.
2: <laughs> Essentially,
1: it's, it's the things I've been thinking about for the past year all culminated in this one library, basically.
0: Yeah, for me, tools like this, um, it sounds like that it solves a number of problems, but I like to boil it down to just that one or maybe two things, and it's just hey, if I have this problem, this is my solution. Is, is there like an elevator pitch for this where you just basically in two seconds say, if you're trying to solve this, then do this. For example, we had Lee Byron on last week and we talked about immutable JS. And the big win there was effectively dirty checking. I mean, it, does, it solves a bunch of other problems, but that, that it was fast dirty checking. Um, and he said, if you have this problem, it's a slam dunk. And then if you have some of these other problems, it, it'll solve those problems. But yeah, I'm curious. Is there just that that one use case where somebody's going to go, "Oh, yeah, I have that use case. I need this."
1: That's a really good question. I think maybe that's. I think maybe that's a bit too broad. But I think if you're trying to style a React application, you should use style components because we're going to solve all the issues for you. <laughs> there you go. Um, if you want to do it right? <laughs> no, that's obviously not true. If I think. There is So for for small apps, I don't think styled components makes a lot of sense. You just use CSS, um, and that works perfectly fine. But when you get to a point where your CSS is in a huge mess and you sort of change some style somewhere and it breaks the whole page or the layout just doesn't look right and you can't figure out which part of the CSS affects what and why it doesn't, that's the point where styled components, that just doesn't happen. It cannot happen. So if you've ever had that sort of issue where... There's this old joke about CSS, right? Um, two CSS selectors walk into a bar, a bar, a bar stool in a totally different bar falls over. It's a really old joke about CSS and it's been shared pretty widely for the simple reason that many people have seen that issue where you change a tiny thing somewhere and something somewhere entirely different breaks and you're like, mm-hmm. what happened? Why, how, are those two aren't even related. And suddenly you realize that some dev thought, hey, the button class has exactly the styling that I need. So why shouldn't I just reuse it? You know, dry and all that. So let me just reuse the button class in my header. And then you realize, oh my god, like that's going to break everything. Right? And so that problem just doesn't exist with style components anymore. That's the main problem we solve. That makes sense. That wasn't a very good elevator pitch, but...
0: No, no, but it does make sense. So the other question I have is, let's say that I've got a React application that I've been just using regular style sheets on, and I've been having that particular issue where, you know, I tweak some style and it's it's messing up my layout. And so now I have to go in and play the scoping game. And I'm thinking, you know what? Why don't I just fold this into my existing app? Is is that a real
1: pain? Or is it worth No, doing? absolutely not. Or how, how does it's, that... totally, it's totally worth doing. And it's much easier than with other libraries, in fact, because we let you write styles as actual CSS, right? We let you write actual CSS in JavaScript. With many of the other libraries, because you're writing styles as objects, you'd have to completely rewrite everything because you can't just copy and paste it. With style components, you literally just copy and paste it, say const wrapper equals style.div, and that's it, right? Um, I've, done, I've actually done that for a bunch of apps, and it's really easy. Like, it's no trouble at all. Especially, it's especially easy if you use something like BEM. If you're already using BEM notation and sort of trying to adhere to this um, encapsulation of components thing, then it's ridiculously easy. You literally just copy and paste it, say, hey, that's something you can go and just,
0: that's it. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. Engineers have watched over 2 million hours of Frontend Masters videos to upgrade their skills in the latest best practices in Frontend Development and Node.js. Popular video courses of theirs include courses on Advanced JavaScript, Angular 2, React, API Design with Node, and Functional and Asynchronous JavaScript. Many of their teachers have even been guests on JavaScript Jabber. Check them out at frontendmasters.com. Yep, Amy, what are your picks?
2: Okay. So the first one is a blog post I saw on Hacker News yesterday. Uh, what makes a senior software developer I feel like so many people ask this question. Um, I don't know. For me personally, I try not to like put a lot of weight on title because I feel like it just varies from place to place and person to person and people value different things. But um, for people who this question is in the back of their mind a lot, it was a decent read. Uh, my other one, I'm going to do a food pick cause I like to do those, but this one is totally out of my usual realm. Uh, I'm going to pick something totally not healthy, horrible for you, but oh my gosh, they're absolutely amazing. So, uh, Nashville is like, I don't know if there's so much good food here. It's a good thing. I like to run, <laughs> uh, and good thing I have good genetics. Uh, but anyways, um, so I tried on Sunday, this place called five daughters bakery and they have these donuts that literally take three days to make. So you might be able to go online and potentially get them like shipped to you. I don't know how good that would be, but if you're ever in the Nashville area you have to try this bakery called Five Daughters Bakery. Like, oh my gosh, they even have like donuts with bacon on them and oh like it was incredible. <laughs> Anyways, that's it for me.
0: Awesome. They have a place out here, maybe I'll pick that. It's called Simply Glazed.
2: They, oh gosh.
0: They get glazed donuts and they frost them. With all kinds of stuff.
2: I mean, literally, like, these donuts take three days
1: to make. Oh, they, man.
2: Uh, they're incredible. I made, for a friend, I made, like, a donut birthday cake. So, it's good stuff. Wow.
1: That sounds delicious.
2: It was amazing. You,
1: you can make <laughs> no, a I'm donut hungry. birthday cake. I wouldn't complain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's because I am, I am not a cook. So, I was like, hmm, what can I do that looks good but minimal effort? So, I went to Target, got some happy birthday candles, and got some donuts. Job done. <laughs>
0: Nice. Yeah, I'm getting old. I'm going to be 37 tomorrow. All right. Ooh, happy birthday. Oh, a bit too early,
1: but, you know.
0: All right, yeah, so happy birthday. Thanks. Well, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. The first one is um, I'm pulling together a conference, so this is a little bit self-serving, but uh, it's hopefully you serving too if you're doing stuff with DevOps or deployment. Um, we're putting on a DevOps remote comp in January. Um, so go ahead and get those tickets. Uh, we've got... An ibm engineer coming and talking to us about docker and setting up continuous integration and deployment uh, with docker and how they do it there um we've got nathan harvey from chef we've got a whole bunch of other people coming and just giving excellent talks um we have somebody coming and talking about how they manage devops at uh, hewlett-packard enterprise so it's it's going to be a great conference and i'm really looking forward to it so definitely check it out um Another pick that I have, I, I did uh, honorable mention to Simply Glaze just because whenever I want something that's really bad for me because it's half donut. It's <laughs> honorable mention. I'm about
2: to post a picture of the of the cake I made. It was that good.
0: Awesome. Um, so I'm going to pick that. And then I have actually been uh, learning React a bit. Um, so I, Frontend I, Masters is one of our sponsors but their courses are excellent. I I've been kind of alternating between the React, um, the React one, and I forget who the teacher is, Brian Holt, I think, from Netflix. And then um, the React Native course, uh, Scott Moss is the teacher on that one, and uh, they are really, really good. And uh, I've really been enjoying those. Um, so definitely check both of those out.
1: Nice, Max, what are your picks? So there was a great article posted just today um, about eleven lessons learned as a React contractor, and the writer John, John goes really in depth about some of the lessons he's learned seeing all of these different codebases, and it's a really really great article that I would definitely recommend you read if you have anything to do with React at all. Um, my second pick is a bit self-serving as well, just because I have to. Um, I recently, two weeks ago, rebooted my blog, so I. The last post I wrote on my blog was on January 18th, 2016. So basically a year ago almost. And then three weeks ago, I was like, well, I should start doing this thing again. And so I've completely rewritten my styling and my blog and what it looks like and posted some new articles. And I'm going to continue to do that and try to do it weekly. So that's mxacbr.blog. Definitely check that out if you do anything with React. Um, And my last pick is a tweet. Which a very famous person in the open source world posted a, an issue where somebody complained about their project really meanly, right? And really um, um, was really not not very friendly, right? For this, like they get free software and then they complain, which is typical open source thing everybody talks about, right? And then a lawyer who is into technical stuff replied with an annotated MIT license that says, here's the part that says who the software belongs to. Here's the part where we generously grant you the broadcast permission, the broadest permission we could think of to fix bugs and add features for yourself. And then the last part, here's the part that says we don't owe you shit. (laughs) And I thought that's so brilliant because that's literally what the MIT license is. And yeah, I love that tweet. So that's my last pick.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing that, people don't realize is that it's copyrighted so they could revoke the license at any time yeah you know and and, and you can use it in its current state but anything else they add to it it's copyrighted and it's not legal for you to use so yeah anyway i'm not recommending to any project owners that they do that but you know (laughs) I, i think it's a perspective right you know they they still technically own the code and they're being nice and letting you use it so
1: yeah exactly I think many people don't really understand that, which is a shame.
0: All right. Well, um, you mentioned your blog, um, or Twitter, uh, any other places people should uh, be following you before we wrap up?
1: Um, mostly, mostly Twitter. I tweet a lot. So if you don't mind that, follow me on Twitter. That's the main place I'm at. Or on GitHub, I guess. But I don't tweet anything there.
0: <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show then. Thanks for coming, Max.
1: You are very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bye.